Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. Okay, it looks like we are live. We've got a very special guest here with us tonight. I would like to welcome Dr. Robert Carter to the show. He has been generous enough to give us his time tonight for an incredibly important interview. I have a lot of respect for this man as he has taught me so much through his articles, teachings, videos, and technical papers. It's an honor to have him here with us tonight. I can assure everybody that you are definitely going to leave tonight's interview having learned something. One video in particular, actually, that jumps out at me as being extremely helpful is found on YouTube from the program Origins, where Dr. Carter discusses Noah's flood genetics. It's got well over 570,000 views, and this specific video has been an incredible blessing as I have sent it to family members and, and friends, and they were always blown away by the amazing evidence for biblical creation. I oftentimes hear people saying, I've experienced it in, in my own family. You know, they say, I don't know why I've never heard of this evidence before. Well, the truth is the scientific evidence for Adam and Eve and young earth creation is overwhelming. And we are about to get uh, into some of that evidence tonight, actually. A few must read articles that Dr. Carter has written are here. I'm just going to flash a couple on the screen just for people to see for reference. Uh, reading evolution into the scriptures, a review of Adam in the genome reading a scripture after genetic science. Um, Adam, Eve, and Noah versus modern genetics. Can mutations create new information? Highly recommend that one. As well as the non-mythical, Adam and Eve refuting errors by Dr. Francis Collins and Biologos. Um, anyways, enough for me. I'm going to hand it over to uh, Matt. I want to thank him for being here today for the interview. We are both uh, very excited, as I know everybody in the audience is as well. And Matt, if you'd like to introduce our guest tonight. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks again. And uh, thank you, Dr. Carter, for being here. This is awesome. I hope that the audience is going to love it. We've been waiting for somebody like you to come around for a while now. So this is going to be awesome. But uh, Dr. Carter has a PhD. Well, correct me if I'm wrong in any of this, but Dr. Carter has a PhD in marine biology. He received his PhD from the University of Miami in like 2003. Uh, his background is in genetics, gene cloning and uh, sequencing and transgenics. And he's began working on the gene project, I believe, for ICR. And then you're a speaker now for Creation Ministries International. And uh, he was the leading editor of a book called Evolution Achilles Heel and a co-producer and director of the award-winning documentary with the same name. And uh, over the years, he's published multiple papers directly towards building a biblical model of the human genetic history. So we're going to probably talk about that today as well. But enough from me and Standing for Truth. I'd love if you would have uh, like to introduce yourself at all in any ways. That would be great. Well, I think you did a pretty good job with the intro. Um, for all of you who were uh, sitting there listening to that really quick uh, citation of all those papers, 
creation.com. You can type in Carter Genetics and it'll just come up with a list. Maybe my CV is on there. All my articles, very easy to find. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of information that we've provided for you. And we're very excited that, in fact, I'm particularly, I'm glad I'm in genetics. I am tickled pink that God put me in genetics because I think we have some of the best arguments for creation that anyone has. Awesome. Amen. Amen. That's our favorite subject as well. So that's why we're so thrilled to have you on. You've, you've taught us so much um, indirectly. So it's awesome to actually have you here tonight with us. So if, if you don't mind, Dr. Carter, maybe we'll just get right into it with, um, I guess, a question. Um, so, Dr. Carter, we constantly hear from evolutionists that we creationists reject evolution. But evolution appears to be a, a very slippery term because doesn't evolution just mean change over time? And if that's the case, do we really reject change over time? Can you expand on this for us? I was in a, um, a Twitter battle with an atheist very recently who um, one of my videos I posted on YouTube was about epigenetics and Darwin. And he uh, got me twisted. No, I, he didn't get me twisted around, but he twisted my words around to the point where he said, oh, well, if epigenetics can be naturally selected, therefore evolution is true. <laughs> I just let him have it. Cause I, you know, in Twitter, you never get the last words. It's like, whatever. But what, what he essentially said was if things change, then evolution is true, which is ridiculous it's... because yeah, the definition means change over time. Okay, fine. But I believe in change over time and I don't believe in evolution. So obviously something else is going on here. You cannot use the word oh, just that, from uh, Lord of the Rings, you cannot. Anyway, one simply <laughs> does not define evolution. Um, if you want to define evolution, you have to use the phrase common ancestry. Right. So perhaps enough change over enough time can lead to the common ancestry of all things or not. That's an open question still after all these years. It's still something that has not actually been settled. Now, I don't think at all this can happen. Genetics is too complicated. Living things are too complicated. You can't get life started. You can't maintain life using a simple mutation plus natural selection scenario. Well, here's the thing. You must have not watched your video because you clearly stated that epigenetics is just the expression of genes. Since the genes themselves aren't actually changing or evolving, they're just exactly. the expression. So, exactly. He, yeah, w without actually watching the video, he skipped over the important part of if natural selection is hindering or helping in organisms based on something they're expressing has nothing to do with their DNA, then Darwinian evolution doesn't work. Right. And you mentioned forward thinking. It, it's not a forward thinking process. So how can epigenetics, how can evolution do these things? It's epigenetics that's doing. People listening, epigenetics, like what? Epigenetics <laughs> is... um is the idea that there are things in the genome that affected how the DNA is expressed. Turn genes on, turn genes off, things like that, that come from the environment. So the way you look and the way you act depends a lot on the environment you grew up with. It can affect lots of genes. And if that's true, then natural selection is acting upon the environment, not the DNA underneath it. Right. It's a big problem. It, it just it it creates a moving target for natural selection and makes evolution slow down. Right, and there and if, what I've noticed from epigenetics is the very uh, the favorite arguments they use as beneficial mutations all ended up being hampered by the discovery of epigenetics. They thought the lactose 
was a thing of, of mutation based. And then they found that it was just an epigenetic regulation. It stayed switched on. And therefore, after weaning, the people never had been switched back off. So they were able to cons keep consuming milk and dairy, right? Not some new thing. It's not like humans all of a sudden evolved the ability to now digest milk. We have to, we're mammals. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So anyway, well, yeah. I'll go ahead. Oh, I, well, I was just going to say, yeah, I guess because epigenetics was uh, brought up and then Matt, you can go to the next question. If, from my understanding of natural selection, Dr. Carter sees the short term, but yet epigenetics suggests, you know, built in mechanisms for uh, adaptation and change, wouldn't that require forward thinking, long, long term planning? So how can evolutionary mechanisms like natural selection mutations build that which requires forward thinking? Would it, wouldn't they be proposing evolution as a mind in that case? It is theoretically possible that, without any forward thinking, it is theoretically possible that a series of random accidents can do something eventually. So, you know, maybe if, if um, an organism is blue, but it would be more camouflaged if it was more like an orangey brownish color, then a mutation to some pigment gene might change the color. Okay, fine. Right. But what you're not going to get is hyper complex structures. And the more complex life is, the less able evolution is to explain it. So what they do is they start off with, oh, I can imagine a small change creating a, a phenotypic change in an organism. Therefore, evolution is true. No, what you just showed was that change can happen. Right. But what if the change is cyclical or what if it goes downhill? Or what if, you know, you're never going to get over the hump of this super complex thing? Like in the origin of species, Darwin is talking about the evolution of the eye, which is a massive problem for him. And he said it kept him up at night. Well, fine. But he says, start with a light sensitive spot. And then once you have that, you can imagine the, 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 the spot forming a cup and then growing a lens. And all of a sudden you can have a camera eye. But whoa, 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 Darwin, hold it. You started with a miracle. You started with the detection of photons with photon labile chemicals. The things in our eyeballs that detect light are destroyed by light. And then somehow this super complex chemistry that has to regenerate itself is connected to a nerve that runs to a brain that can interpret a signal. I mean, he started with this hyper complexity and then tried to finagle it just a little bit here and there and there without any understanding of what was actually behind the detection of light biochemically. And so forget change over time. That is not an argument for evolution. The origin of life, that's where we have to go. The origin of sexual reproduction, the origin of biochemistry, the origin of, of um, the, the eukaryotic genome with the introns and the splicing uh, system and things like that. that that's the stuff that evolution has to, has to answer, but they don't go there. They usually park on the really easy stuff. And then sit back and just imagine what would happen over millions of years if easy mutations just accumulated. Yeah, they really don't like the origin of really anything. They say, let's just focus on what we know and what's going on and then leave the origin stuff out of it. That's just, that's too hard. Like the dominoes already standing. Forget about why the dominoes exist. Well, Darwin started that. He wrote The Origin of Species. To speculate about the origin of matter, you might as well speculate about the origin of life. Ha ha ha. But today it's called the Big Bang. So yeah, people speculate about the origin of matter, totally, because they realize that to have a fully secular, fully naturalistic world, you have to explain where things came from. So they invented this magic wand called the Big Bang. 
Right. As a matter of fact, according to our model, we believe that the scripture talks about we living in a fallen world. And the evidence appears to show and indicate that we live in a world that has been degenerated from creation. Oh, yeah. um, well, if we see rapid decay in our genomes due to mutations, is this what we're really seeing? And is this um, this seems to all go back to the concept of genetic entropy, kind of uh, Sanford's model. Right. So. Dr. Carter, what is the genetic entropy exactly? And what are some of the best lines of evidence supporting it? Genetic entropy is the idea that if most mutations are weak, natural selection can't see them. In order for natural selection to operate, a variation has to affect reproduction. Either you die young or you don't have as many children or whatever it is, it's something that affects how many children you have. Most mutations, like, I mean, you and I and everyone listening were born with about a hundred mutations that our parents didn't have when they were born. And I don't feel like a mutant, but I have a hundred new spelling errors in my genome. And those mutations, I might have a broken gene. I might have a defect of something else. I might have some rearrangement somewhere. They're just, I mean, if you had like, a, if you had a textbook for biology class and it was handwritten, I would expect to find a few mutations in that textbook. But let's say that at the end of every year, the student has to hand in for his final project a handwritten copy of his textbook and the original is destroyed. And then the next year's class, they're handed the textbooks that were copied the year before. And every year a new copy is made, a new copy is made, a new, eventually no one will be able to pass biology class because right. there'll be so many mistakes in the books, it'll be, It'll be totally worthless. And that's an analogy of what's happening in the genome. If we are picking up mutations every generation, that means we're going downhill. And eventually, we will have to go extinct mathematically. That's so, Go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, that's an awesome answer. So essentially, Dr. Carter, we're more mutant today than we've ever been. And even on a population level, if you were to, let's say, get rid of the worst of the worst, you're still left with people who are more mutant than the generation before it. Yep. Yeah, very simple. Now it we've seen very... this um, massive computer models. Uh, there's a, a program written called Mendel's Accountant that was written by Sanford and uh, several computer scientists. It was designed specifically to test ideas of evolution and genetic entropy using nothing but evolutionary assumptions. It's really interesting that the most comprehensive evolutionary modeling program was written by creationists. Right, right. And they went out on a limb because they might have been wrong. Right, And it seems like um, the criticisms that I've read, I guess, in blogs is typically where you find it. It, it. it almost appears like they have no understanding of the program to begin with. Absolutely. Yeah. And they almost never understand that this objection they raise was systematically analyzed and published. Right, right. So truncation selection, synergistic ep epistasis, all these things they might throw out, these big words they try to throw at you. Wait, wait. Oh, that was in this article right here. Oh, you're not going to read it, are you? No. Yeah, right. I, I find that um, in, in my own experience where a, uh, a criticism is brought up and, and I'll send them a, a technical paper that, that's been published that explains the data and then I never hear from them again. So like you said, I, I don't think they're even uh, reading it. But the greatest place to see genetic entropy, actually, there's two. One's in the human genome. If you look at the you know, seven and a half billion people in the world today, essentially every single possible mutation has happened 
in the human genome millions of times only in this generation. Mm. If every person is born with 200-ish mutations, there's seven and a half billion people. There's only three billion letters in the genome. Wow. <laughs> when, when you think of it that way, it's it's a I, for us. Our, our hope is in Christ. So, you know, it's 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 yeah. not a scary thing, essentially, because our hope is in heaven. But for the unbeliever, you know, that can be a, a daunting fact to accept. Yeah. So they just generally just dismiss it without considering, because to consider right. it means a lot There's a lot of implications behind it. I mean, that means that we're ticking time bomb our species. There's a limit to how long we can live. Which makes right. sense universally. I mean, second right. law of thermodynamics applies to everything. It applies to information also. It's not just about molecules in a dish. It applies to all systems. All systems, errors accumulate over time. And that's what we're seeing in the genome. Right, right. Awesome points. Well, um, Dr. Carter, I've seen critics of the genetic entropy model. I've seen them. This is a common one. Um, and, and this was also brought up in Paul Price's debate, and Paul Price did a phenomenal job. They'll say that Kimura has been misrepresented, and apparently beneficial mutations should be able to counterbalance the damage done by deleterious mutation accumulation. What would be the best way to counter such a, a criticism? Um, that, again, has been thoroughly analyzed using Mandel's accountant. Right. So using nothing but, you know, Kimura's model and, and neutral evolution, they, you can put in whatever mutation spectrum you want. How many positive mutations would you like? How many negative mutations would you like? How strong are they? What's your distribution of mutations? Are most of them nearly neutral or some are most of them really bad or really good? Put in whatever distribution you want, put it into your model, run it over time. And if you have some super beneficial good mutation, Yes, it will amplify itself in the genome while you're going extinct. Because wow. if you're selecting for that particular variant, like maybe it makes you 10 feet tall and you know as strong, strong as Arnold Schwarzenegger and you're super smart <laughs> and you know everything all together. It just it maybe it doubles the amount of children that you have. Well, if that's being selected that strongly, that means that everything in the region around it is also being selected. And it's carried along with it, all these bad mutations that are accumulating are carried along with that good mutation. Right. And you have a dramatic loss of diversity in that area because all the other variants are not being uh, amplified, only that one at the expense of everything else. And so what happens is you have fixation of that good mutation and fixation of all the bad mutations along with it. Got it. So there's no counterbalance at all. Got it. No. In fact, I just read a paper last week, two weeks ago, and they said that most of the human genome is under purifying selection, meaning that even if most of that material really isn't very functional, the functional areas are carrying along all the non-functional stuff with it. Right. Boom. That's exactly the idea. So yeah, you can select for blue eyes or, or lactose tolerance or sickle cell anemia, but that means that everything in that neighborhood in the genome is also being selected. Right. So the evolutionists have to address the key issue, which would be net gain versus net loss. And although by the sounds of it, you can increase fitness occasionally in a, in a very narrow sense, sure. but the entirety of the genome is still degenerating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, example of fitness gain would be um, the increase in sickle cell anemia in Central Africa. The sickle cell is de 
debilitating uh, disease. It's a terrible disease. It hurts. It kills people. But if your red blood cells have the ability to crystallize, if the hemoglobin has the ability to crystallize inside your blood, that tears apart the malaria parasites that live inside the red blood cells. So it's better to have the sickle cell trait in the presence of malaria than to be dead. Right, right. So it's a very strong selective pressure, and yet it's selecting for something that's bad. And we see that all over the place. There's so many broken things in the genome that are selectable. Tons of them. Right. So, so it sounds like even though beneficial mutations are rare, when you do get a beneficial mutation like sickle cell anemia, for example, that has a significant impact, overall it's due to something broken and it's still reductive in some way. Yeah. Almost all so-called beneficial mutations are reductive. In fact, they're not beneficial except in a very specific context. Right. Like, you know, the, the blind cave fish. Why would you want to lose an eyeball? Didn't it take you a half a billion years to evolve that eyeball in the first place? Right. Well, in a cave where there's no light, you don't want an eyeball. You get a scrape, you get a fungal infection, you're dead. If you don't have any eyeballs, that the most sensitive part of your body is not present. Okay. So that's a strongly selectable trait in a dark environment, but it's totally going the wrong direction. And that's what we see. Almost every case of a strongly selectable trait is something going backwards. Well, what's funny, it seems like the evidence is clear. Everything you're saying is, is, is amazing confirmation evidence of a world that was once perfect and now has descended into degeneration, death, extinction. I found a few critics that like to brush it off by simply ignoring the data and just asking questions regarding, you know, how do you quantify information loss? How do you, is there a metric for information loss? How do you define information? So sometimes I find they resort to these types of responses. Are you, is, is this something you're familiar with and, and how would you respond to that? Um, yeah. In fact, I've written several articles on information for creation.com. Uh, one of them was um, titled, uh, do mutations create new information? Yes. A lot of creationists, incorrectly, I believe, use a phrase, something like, um, mutations never create information, they only destroy information. Right. Uh, no. Because any change in the DNA, if you have a duplication, well, you just doubled the amount of information. In fact, a lot of the plants that we use, like you know, wheat and corn, and a lot of our um, uh, the plants that we plant in the garden for flowers... They have quadruple genomes or double genomes at least. So the genomes have doubled. You, you have twice as amount of information there. Now, how do you define information? Okay, yeah, you can go forever trying to define it. But if a stretch of something that says do this occurs, and if you double that, you've changed the information. It's just like if you had a, a, a recipe for chocolate chip cookies and it said add one cup of chocolate chips and it doubled to, to say again, add one cup of chocolate chips you just change the information content and now you have double chocolate chip cookies they're different <laughs> right. you've changed it and yet all you did was stutter right. so information can change in fact i think that god put into the genomes that he created a potential a huge potential for change through deletion duplication and rearranging of the genes that he created so imagine if he, in Adam and Eve, um, he created one chromosome with two genes next to each other and two 
on the other chromosome were the same two genes, but had two different versions of these genes. So you can either have these two genes or these two genes duplicated, or you can have them together, but you would never have this gene and this gene because they're opposite chromosomes until a chromosomal recombination happens. And all of a sudden you have gene version two of gene one with gene version one of gene two on the same chromosome. And if you're homozygous for that, all of a sudden you can express traits that were not in creation. You've rearranged the information and brought out something brand new. I mean, look at corn. The, the native corn looks like grass. Teosinte is, um, it's, it's grass. I don't know why some Mesoamerican said, hey, I think I can make something tasty out of that. <laughs> and they brought they grew to this monster thing that's six feet tall with these gigantic ears with these big fat kernels. It's a grass. And look <laughs> what we did to it. It doesn't have the same information content as the original. There's been a lot of selection, a lot of loss of information. So it's got less information. Some mutations have happened. So that's new information. And the trajectory of that grass changed into corn over time. So the idea. Mutations never produce information I don't agree with. We've got to be really careful when we use the, the information argument. It's really difficult, right. actually. Well, that was, yeah, that was an amazing, I agree 100% with, uh, with everything you said there. I think that's a really important uh, question to be able to answer, and the way you answered it was so thorough. Um, one, one final question on genetic entropy, Dr. Carter, because I know you wrote, you, you've written on this one, and then we'll move on to kind of an, another topic. But I've heard critics endlessly claim that genetic entropy cannot be true because of the existence of bacteria and mice, for example. Now, is this a misrepresentation of what genetic entropy would claim or predict? And what would be the best way to respond to that argument? Uh, genetic entropy was written with long-lived complex organisms in mind. So humans and elephants, we're doomed. And yet, if you look at mice, there are hundreds of subspecies of the common mouse. They have karyotypic differences. They have different chromosome counts. They're reproductively incompatible in a lot of cases, but they're the same thing. They're mice, and they were recently were the same species. So they get isolated in a, in a sewer line or, you know, Delhi versus Bombay or something like that. And they don't, they're not able to exchange genes. They have such a high reproduction rate and such a high die off rate. I mean, if, if mice reproduce, you know, every 30 days, we'll say if that's what their generation time is, maybe, maybe 60 days, whatever it is. That means that the entire mouse population gets replaced every 30 to 60 days. That's a recipe for natural selection with a large population with a high die-off rate. You might be able to get selection to keep on purifying something and, and prevent it from going extinct. And yet, because we see all these karyotypic differences, it's not true for mice. It might be true, though, for bacteria. I wrote a, um, an article on creation.com called Genetic Entropy in Simple Organisms. And I said that bacteria are the one thing that might escape genetic entropy because when E. coli reproduces its, its chromosome, there's less than one mutation per generation. It's a few million letters of bacterial polymerases make a mistake every billion letters. 
So you could have E. coli reproducing with complete fidelity, no mutations. Second, well, if that E. coli population replaces itself every you know 30 minutes to an hour worldwide, that means that there's an unbelievable turnover, which means that even the slight signal might be able to amplify itself over time when you have that much selection happening. So, oh, and plus, bacteria can go dormant for a long time. And so bacteria can be continually flushed back into the environment that are the original bacteria. In fact, E. coli today, there might be an E. coli around that has the same exact chromosome as the first E. coli. Now, I doubt that, but it's possible. So genetic entropy might not apply to bacteria. It does apply to mice. It definitely applies to humans and things with very long lifespans and long generation times. It also applies to viruses. And it's like, it's like, it's like if it applies to humans but, and mice, but not bacteria, well, the curve goes back up again. It definitely applies to viruses. We see mutation accumulation driving viral groups extinct. We see it all over the place. The um, influenza virus that I studied, we watched it go extinct. In fact, um, we published, a creationist published, that the human H1N1 virus that was circulating in the world since 1917 went extinct in 2009. The evolutionists didn't notice. That was the year the swine flu came out. The swine H1N1 was floating around, and nobody noticed the human one disappeared. Mm. So after... 1918 through uh, 2009, 90 years, actually a little less than that, it, it went extinct after about 13% of his genome had mutated. And it mutated randomly. We looked at the codons for the uh, amino acids. We looked at all these different measurements. And we said, that this is just random chemistry because C tends to spontaneously deaminate, which turns it into a U. And then the proofreading enzymes fix that as a T. So you get the C to T changes are the most common changes in the genome. And A to G is the second most common change. And what we looked at is like, this is just chemistry. But wait, whoa, 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 chemistry? Uh-uh, that's not allowed in evolution. Natural selection has to overcome the second law of thermodynamics or all things are doomed to extinction. And yet when we look at the E. coli or the, um, sorry, E. coli, when we looked at the H1N1 genome, all we saw was the second law of thermodynamics. We could predict what changes would happen in the future based on chemistry alone. Incredible. Problem for them. I was up till two o'clock in the morning last night. And first thing in the morning, I was back at it. In fact, I worked until 7.30 or maybe 7.15. I went and took a shower and showed up here. So I'm nice and clean. But I pounded keys all day today and I did nothing but align uh, COVID-19 genomes. Wow. Interesting. I, I downloaded um, a 500 gigabyte file, which is all of the COVID-19 genomes that have been loaded to GenBank since July. I had all the ones from December to July. And I said, oh, I got to do it again. I, the, the, the file is huge. I spent all day lining this up so I can analyze the, the, the changes. And the changes, I mean, you can see a direction. It's going that way. Really? It's not supposed to go that way. It's supposed to be natural selection does what it wants to it. Oh, no. It's going this way no matter what natural selection does. Interesting, because I, I've heard that the COVID-19 virus is actually about half as fast as the average typical cold flu. Is it much slower that you've noticed? And is it slower? 
yeah, or uh, mutation rate, for example. Um, oh, um, the mutation rate is, is is hard to estimate because for the first five or six months, there were still viruses that were identical to the first virus. They hadn't mutated yet. And yeah. other ones had 30 or 40 mutations. Got it. And so there's a, if you look at, there's a cloud of points and you try to draw a line through it. Well, you know, where's that line go? But now that enough time has gone by, it's got about the same mutation rate as H1N1 and about the same mutation rate as Ebola. Wow. Okay. And Ebola is harder. We don't have as many sequences and they only go back to 1976. Not like, you know, H1N1 went back to 1918. That's a great zero point. 1976, there's not enough time to really see a nice a linear accumulation in mutations. There's too much variation and spread. And that's what we're seeing in H1N1. Uh, COVID-19. There's so much variation that we don't know. But over time, mutations will build up and build up and build up and build up. And then we can draw a line and I can tell you exactly what the mutation rate is. Nice. Okay. So um, is it a safer type of a virus, meaning that because it mutates a little bit slower, that it would, uh, we don't have to be in much fear, like most, you know, cold flu season comes, you know, every year they get a new vaccination, right? Because it's mutated so much, it doesn't resemble the original. But if COVID, what would you say to that? Um, I would say that the best thing that can happen to this virus is mutation. Got it. The evolutionists are afraid of mutation because they think that mutation leads to evolution. No, mutation leads to devolution. Mutation destroys things. Mutation weakens things. Yeah, maybe you can get some mutation that maybe the, the spike protein splits easier, therefore it's you know twice as infectious or twice as deadly. Okay, this is possibly true, but those types of mutations are incredibly rare. Most all the mutations are breaking the thing, making it weaker. That's how they treat AIDS. One of the, the primary way that, to keep the viral load in an AIDS patient down is you give them drugs that cause mutations. Mm. The viruses reproduce, they go into error catastrophe. Right. Remsdevir is, is exact, it does exactly that. It causes, um, it causes reproductive problems in the virus. It mutates itself to, ex- to, to non-existence. That's funny. It's ironic that they see it in one area, but they don't see it in the next. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, but the way you just said it, though, you were hinting at, oh, let's be afraid of mutations. Right. But we shouldn't be, except that it is true that a mu- new mutation can do something bad. And that new mutation might cause this thing to spread faster or to be more deadly. We don't want that to happen. But in general, lots of mutations will just destroy it. Okay. Got it. Well, um, Actually, Matt, if I could, if I, I know we're gonna we're gonna jump into um, some questions on Adam and Eve, but real quick, I, I guess one bonus question because we've got Paul Price in the audience who I wanted oh. to give a shout out. Yeah, <laughs> he's coming at you, Doctor Carter. Uh, <laughs> but I wanted to give a, a shout out to Paul Price for making this happen. Uh, he's been a real blessing, uh, helping me tremendously. So also, we've got over sixty people in the chat. People are loving this. This is great. Uh, so Paul Price asks, Doctor Carter. A lot of population geneticists, I shall see if I can put it on the screen. There we go. A lot of population geneticists will say that nearly neutral mutations are just as likely to be beneficial as they are to be damaging. Do you think that's plausible? Uh, it's actually irrelevant. If, if you have um, mutations, most mutations aren't going to be very strong. But if you've got a whole bunch of you know, beneficial mutations that aren't very strong, 
natural selection can't see them. They're irrelevant. And like 99.999% of all mutations disappear randomly. Just because, I mean, you know, I've got, um, I have one son. My second cousin, who's also a Carter, has one son. As far as I know, there are only two living male descendants of my Irish great-great-great-great-grandfather. My Y chromosome lineage is nearly extinct. And if there's some beneficial mutation on that Y chromosome, it's probably going to be gone in a generation or two. And that's true also for all the little bits and pieces of my genome. Even though I have four kids, not all of my genes are in all four of my kids. Some of them weren't passed on at all. They're done. And just because of random chance, almost all new mutations are lost to drift, even if they're beneficial. Even if they're selectable, they can still just be accidentally lost. So um, I'll let the evolutionists pick a mutation spectrum. In this case, they're trying to they're trying to go away from the old idea that you have this uh this this spike of a whole bunch of mutations. Let's see if um on this side, this is the bad side over here. Okay. If you have a whole bunch of mutations that are bad, most of them are you know hugging the zero line, only a little bit bad. Maybe you have someone out here like you're born without a head or no legs or something like that. That's a real bad mutation. But most of them are here. But on the other side, they said, Oh, there's a few good ones. Well, if they want to push that, fine. But then they have to come up with a realistic model of mutations. It's not true that most mutations are really good. It's simply not true. When we look at the changes in the genome, we can see all these people walking around with broken genes. That's your average mutation. Missing, missing letters, uh, deletions in chromosomes, rearrangements that cause reproductive incompatibilities between people. Most mutations are not good. If they want to say most mutations are good, that gets really weird real fast because it's not what Darwinists have said ever. They just want to, if you want to move the goalposts, okay, move the goalposts, but you're out in la-la land now. <laughs> yeah, we notice that a lot. We, we get the most, uh, the most critical people that are against us actually come into what the next phase of questions are going to be. And it's a common argument that a literal and Adam and Eve could not possibly exist. Basically, it comes down to genetic diversity. And some of the critics, including uh, Dr. Francis Collins and Dr. Venema, uh, claim that it would be unfeasible even and unscientific for a single human couple to have, you know, existed ever together. And um, they would even say that it would require mutations so much are much too fast in order to account for all of the variety that we see in the human population today. Is there any validity to this argument? Venema has said that, and Francis Collins has said that. Um, and uh, my um, my article, uh, Adam and Eve, um, I always get confused because the title isn't the same as the URL on, on I think it's called Adam and Eve Biologos on creation.com with the URL, but it's, um, no, not that one. You showed it earlier. Yes, that's it. Um, I pointed out here that they assume that all variation is due to mutation. So they assume evolution to critique creation. They have an evolutionary creation model, which makes no sense. No, in creation, God can front load the genome with as much diversity as he wants to. If all variation is caused by mutation, absolutely, it's impossible. You can't get all the variation we see in modern people if we start from Adam and Eve, if they're 100% homozygous. Right. But 
what if God front-loaded Adam and Eve with like 20 million variants? Then we can lose half of them and still have as much as we have today. And 20 million is not a lot. I carry three or four million. You carry three or four million of the common ones and probably three or four million rare ones. That's fine. So it's actually trivial to start with Adam and Eve and get the people we have today as far as the number of variants. Especially if you had 6,000 years of mutation, you can have a lot of new variants appearing in that 6,000 years. Right. They're coming from their perspective of the evolution having to work in a short time period. Yeah. Well, so what are some of the best evidences for a literal Eve and a literal Adam? Well, the best evidences are the, the fact that we found Y chromosome Adam and mitochondrial Eve. Now, the evolutionist puts them in a different place where I would put them, but it's quite clear there's only one human Y chromosome. And all men share a very similar Y chromosome. That didn't have to be true. Because if we came from a common ancestral population with chimpanzees, that ancestral population would have had a diversity of Y chromosomes. And when the population split into the lineages that led to humans and chimps, it's possible that we could have like in this ancestral population type A, B, C, and D. Well, if humans have type A and B and chimpanzees had type B and C, that means there would be a human and chimp who both had type B. They're more closely related to each other than a human is to another human on the Y chromosome. But it didn't work out that way. It's you know mathematically and, and theoretically possible, but it's totally not true. There's only one Y chromosome. In fact, just yesterday, the um, or maybe the day before, they redid the Neanderthal Y chromosome, which is really, is really weird to me because for a long time, we only had female ancient DNA. All the Neanderthals, all the, the Denisovans as they're sequencing them, they're all female. Like, why is no males? We got like 20 females and no males, something really weird. But they finally published a partial Neanderthal Y chromosome several years ago, and it was way different. I mean, way out in left field. Like, oh, wow, I think it's really different. Well, just a couple of days ago, they replaced it with a very modern human one. Wow. And the common, the Y chromosome common asterisk between Neanderthals and, and humans, modern humans, is much more recent than it was last week. They totally redated it. Incredible. Wow. Where can we find that study? <laughs> I want that one. But uh, so how about molecular clocks then? Um, do they support a literal Adam and Eve? And uh, can an uh, all right, is there a constant clock? Is there an average clock that can actually be made? Yes and no. Okay. If you take a constant average for things we can measure in the laboratory today, you can get an approximation of how long ago uh, Y chromosome Adam or mitochondrial Eve lived. It's only a few thousand years. You don't need tens or even hundreds of thousands of years. Now, they don't like doing that. So they don't like the Y chromosome right now, the clock is grounded in the time when Native Americans got to North America. Okay. In fact, the Y chromosome guys, they call that a sanity check that appears in several papers. So they're not using genetics. They're using archaeology to give them a clock so they can figure out how far long ago uh, mitochondrial e atom was, y, y chromosome atom was. Wow, that's interesting. But if you look at the measurable mutation rate from one generation to the next, it's a lot faster than they want it to be. But 
I don't like the molecular clock idea. I don't think it works. If you look at um, a Y chromosome family tree and you look at people that are closely related, maybe in the same group, well, some of those people could have twice as many mutations as their cousin or relative that came from a same, the same founder of that group. Mm. So like uh, group R1B, I'm an R1B, 80% of Western uh, Europeans are R1B. If you look at the R1B founder and then you measure the branch lengths of all the individuals that are R1B, there are people twice as many mutations as, wait a minute, that means there's no clock. That means you can't put your finger on the tree and know how long it took for these many mutations to accumulate. And yet, if you just do a rough approximation, everything is young. There's another issue. Um, I wrote an article called Patriarchal Drive. I published it in the Journal of Creation. did some computer modeling. I said, we kind of know that the older a father is, the more mutations he passes on to his children. And I said, but if Noah was over 500 years old when he had Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and that population was reduced to six people, that means those three sons, their father was over 500 years old when they were born. That means they each got a huge dose of mutations. And as that post-flood population starts growing, these really old men are going to continue to have children. And the older they get, the more mutations their children are going to have. I call it a patriarchal drive. And what it does is it totally messes up the average. It takes, you know, some kids are being born in this population with 800 mutations. And some kids are being born to a young father and they only have 10 mutations. So you can't look at the branch length on the tree and know that the branch length equals time. It does settle down after a while, when now, you know, men today aren't having children when we're five, 600 years old, we tend to have children when we're 30 years old. That's a huge difference. Yeah. So there are problems with molecular clock, archaeologically, genetically, philosophically, mathematically. Yeah, we can still use it if we want to. Okay. All right. When it comes to recombination, it's been asserted that the rates are too slow to account for the de novo creation of Adam and Eve around 6,000 years ago. Is this an argument you lost? Well, what's the recombination rate? It depends on – we used to think it was random. It's not. It's controlled by a gene. The PRDM9 enzyme looks for a specific set of letters on the chromosome, grabs onto it, and recombines. Ah, Okay. Africans have more of those sites than Europeans. Oh, 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 wait a minute now. Hold it. <laughs> that messes up the molecular clock right there. Because if you have more recombination per generation, your population can hold more diversity. You have more pieces of DNA in the population. So hmm. how long ago was this out of Africa event? Well, I don't know. If Africans have more recombination, they're going to look older just because of the amount of recombination. Right. And because mutation will destroy the PRDM9 sites over time, it's much more likely, I forget what the letter combination is, but it's much more likely to destroy it than to create it through a mutation. So our recombination rate should be slowing down over time. So, okay, so that would, and, and so many good points there that it, it makes, it brings a couple questions to mind. So that would, 
um, in effect, I've heard the critics say, okay, you know, the, the higher levels of genetic diversity found in Africa means Africans are older than non-Africans, but they also look to uh, linkage blocks between Africans and non-Africans that they um, look at that and try and say that Africans are an older population as well and, and use that to support the out of Africa theory. So that looks like the re recombination rates would help with, uh, yeah. with, with those arguments too, Dr. Carter. Yeah. Plus... We don't know how many people went to Africa after the flood. We don't know how many different groups migrated down there. Um, it looks like there was a massive replacement of people in Eurasia. As the farmers learned how to farm in the Middle East, they started spreading out and they replaced Neanderthals. They replaced the Denisovans. They replaced the, um, the ancient hunted gatherers. Most Europeans in ancient times had dark skin and blue eyes. We see that in all, the, all their DNA. And all of a sudden, there's this massive replacement of light-skinned people as they come in with farming. So we can't necessarily look at modern people and say, ah, this is what the original population looked like. The Europeans specifically, we're inbred. We're one of the most inbred large populations on the planet. We, yeah. Europeans came from a very small population group that took over a large area. There's not a lot of genetic diversity in Europe compared to specifically Africa or even the Middle East. Yeah, I saw one of the papers that was recently written. They discovered what they call Cheddar Man, and he had black yeah. skin and blue eyes. Well, well, when those letters appear in modern people, they're associated with darker skin tones. Mm. But it's not perfect. 23me.com says I'm supposed to have blue eyes. I uh, don't have blue eyes. <laughs> but I carry a variant that's very strongly associated with blue eyes. So the inference of how a person looked from their genetics is imprecise. And even if it works in a modern context, we don't know the ancient persons, all these other variants that we don't haven't really categorized yet. And if they're not around the world today, we don't know what they do. You can't necessarily say, but it does look like the evidence is pointing in the direction that the hunter-gatherer Europeans had darker skin and a lot of them had blue eyes. Maybe. Man, well, uh, so one, one question real quick that comes to my mind is they say Neanderthal was a basically a ginger, red hair, pale with freckles. Was that determined again by genes, by finding? <clears throat> uh, yes and no. Neanderthals had a lot of diversity of, of pigmentation genes. They weren't ubiquitously red hair or light skinned. Um, but yeah. definitely some of them carried genes that look like they would have caused that because they're associated with those traits in modern people. Okay. They might have contributed to the light skinnedness of modern Europeans, uh. interestingly. Well, uh, actually, that's a good point. And since you're on the Neanderthals, a question that comes to my mind is I've heard this a few times from some militant uh, critics. They'll adamantly say that Neanderthals, they exhibit a different set of biodiversity when being compared to Homo sapiens. So what I've seen them say, Dr. Carter, is that when we characterize and quantify those differences, this ends up putting Neanderthals as a sister group as compared to the same species as Homo sapiens. So I guess in, in other words, what best explains the Neanderthals according to a biblical creation model? That's a very difficult question. And I have several different possible answers and I'm not satisfied with 
all of them. Um, I'm going to say that uh, Neanderthals represent an early branch of man. And I think ancient man is different than modern man. Modern man is we actually descend from only a subset of the post-flood population in general. Right. So um, Homo erectus, Neanderthal, Denisovans, those are, in fact, probably Neanderthal, I'm sorry, probably Homo erectus is Denisovans. One is a skeleton without a genome, one's a genome without a skeleton. I'm assuming that they're the same, but I don't know that yet. Um, when you look at um, the hunter-gatherers in Southern Africa, when you look at the hunter-gatherers in, in modern hunter-gatherers in Southern Africa or the ancient ones in other places in the world, their genomes are different. They're actually more diverse in some ways. We've lost a lot of genes over time. So that's one answer. They're more genetically different because they're earlier. But also... They're in Neanderthal specifically, that's the most inbred population we've ever seen. From mm -hmm. Spain to Siberia, thousands of miles in extent, they are shockingly inbred. Their homos, their um runs of homozygosity are are really high, even though they're a lot different and they have a lot of different diversity than we do. These long stretches of identical letters in their genomes, meaning you know, their dad married their sister, and things like that. But this is true population wide. And even though we can tell the difference between like a Croatian Neanderthal and a Russian Neanderthal and a Spanish Neanderthal, if you look at them together, they are less different as two people from Iceland. Wow. They're really, really inbred. Plus the Neanderthals, they changed over time. The last Neanderthals are the classic Neanderthals. The earliest ones, they called them um, Homo heidelbergensis who look a little more like modern man than Neanderthal does. So the end stage Neanderthal is a super inbred, on their way to extinction group of people. Now, how they get so different? They might've started off different just because early man could have been more diverse. They could have picked up a lot of mutations over time. Maybe uh, inbred people just pick up lots of mutations. They could have been founded by a patriarch in his old age. And so therefore, you know, a whole bunch of mutations, boom, start off already with a whole bunch of mutations. Um, or that mutation rate could have been higher in the past. Or, you know, all these other ideas, I don't know necessarily what the answer is. But I'm comfortable saying they're human. And I'm laughing at the fact that in the 1800s, you know, the thought that Neanderthal was human was, I mean, you might as well, you know, I don't know. It, just hered it, was, it would be a scientifically heretical statement to suggest at all that Neanderthal was human. They've always been, you know, ape man, half man, half ape, stupid, brutish, blah, 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 blah. But the archaeology is telling us that they're highly intelligent. They're highly invented. They had a diverse diet. They exploited their environment, depending on where they were. They, they, I mean, they ate tuna fish. Mm. Tuna is an open water fish. That means Neanderthals had boats. And we know they had boats because they got to some of the islands in the Mediterranean that have never been connected to the mainland. They probably painted in caves. They made musical instruments. They had music. They buried their dead ceremonially on and on and on and on. They're human beings. And now genetically, we find out that we interbred with them or they interbred with us. In fact, they're our ancestors. They're human. They're people. They're so children of Adam. Something uh, similar happened to the mammoth, right? They're very inbred. I heard they were very messed up genetically same same they, thing 
the end point of the mammoths. Yes, on Wrangell Island and the 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 where they held on the longest. I see. Before that, there's actually uh, pretty diverse genetics of mammoths. You had the southern mammoths. You had the the uh, like the New England mammoths, and then you had the Alaskan mammoths and the Plains mammoths. They're actually genetically different populations, but as they were dying off, the inbreeding really, in fact, they shrunk. There were some a bunch of small mammoths. Those are the last ones. Right. What about the hypervariable regions in the genome where they find more than 400 alleles? Can this all be genetic diversity explained by the biblical time frame? Uh, yeah. In fact, usually when they're talking about that, they're talking about the HLA alleles, which are part of the immune system. Hmm. Our immune system is designed to rearrange DNA to make new antibodies. Now, those aren't necessarily inherited, but it's a highly adaptable portion of the genome. And look, we've had 6,000 years. There's 7 billion people in this world. If you take everyone's family tree and go back in time, we have all these independent branches in the family tree where lots of mutation can happen. So take a gene, you know, if a gene's, let's say, pick a number, 10,000 letters long. That's 10,000 places for a mutation to happen. If one letter change in one place makes a new allele, another letter change in another place makes another allele. It's not a big deal. Of course, there's allelic little diversity. And usually when they say there's all this diversity, they don't tell you what the frequency of these alleles is. Most of these things are incredibly infrequent. They're extremely rare. They're a brand new mutation that happened in Tajikistan or in Patagonia or in you know, Sweden. And it's only one family or in one tribe or in one country or one region. So most of these things are vanishingly rare to the point where you're like, okay, whatever, it's a new mutation. Why is that a big deal when there's 7 billion people? In fact, it's kind of shocking there's so little diversity amongst us. In fact, we have probably one-fifth to one-tenth the genetic diversity of chimpanzees. That's a good a point. A lot, lot fewer chimpanzees in the world. Well, um, now that you mentioned that, because we know humans have incredibly low genetic diversity, like like you said, and you're right, they they don't like to uh, point out the fact that the the allele frequencies and how rare they are. When it comes to them attempting to explain the low genetic diversity, Dr. Carter, it looks like they look to that out of Africa near extinction event. Yeah. Is 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 that? Um, out of Africa near extinction event is is that plausible? And you know, what are some of the major problems associated with that? Since that seems to be what they look to to explain the diversity. Well, first of all, it's a uh, post hoc answer. No one predicted the right. out of Africa event before they found the data, and they're like, "Oh, what do we do now? Oh, well, what if our population is reduced to an effective population size of about ten thousand individuals? Now, could it have been reduced to one thousand or a hundred or ten? Yeah." but they don't allow that in their models. They only go down to about 10,000-ish. And what if that stayed in that size for a very long time? They never say how long, but a very long time. Well, then, according to mathematics, you're naturally going to have a Y chromosome atom. You're naturally going to have a mitochondrial leave, and most genetic diversity will be lost. Because small populations, the inbreeding, you get a lot of loss of diversity. That's why we have um, you know, breeds of dogs. It's because they don't let them breed with another breed. There's only... I don't know how many German shepherds in the world, how many St. Bernard's in the world. Not many, just a few thousand of each. I don't, I don't know. I don't know the numbers actually. That'd be an interesting question. 
but that will dictate to you how much diversity you have. The problem with this is this. There are about 10,000 cheetahs in the wild today. And all the population wildlife ecologists are worried that they're going to go extinct because mutations are increasing, birth defects are increasing, litter size is decreasing, reproductive incompatibility, genetic diversity in cheetahs is going down, 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 down. They're too inbred. If they can't survive about 10,000 individuals, how did we? And if that inbreeding event is a near extinction event, we evolved from the primitive Homo erectus to Homo sapiens in a situation that should have driven us to extinction. If you put, you phrase it like that, all of a sudden you realize, like, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I mean, we went, we went from you know half monkey, half man to flying to the moon, <laughs> right? In a very short amount of time, going through an event that should have bred us into extinction. Yeah. So, <laughs> the it all depends on which accent, which syllable you accent in the story. <laughs> well, I agree with you 100% that it's a post hoc ad hoc uh, rescue device because they never predicted it like you said, Dr. Carter. And I've heard you point out the fact that this is all exactly what we would have predicted from a biblical creation starting point of just Adam and Eve, right? Low genetic diversity, the one Y chromosomal line, the one mitochondrial DNA line, for example. Yes and, and no. Yes and no. Okay. Yeah. Because God could have front-loaded Eve's egg cells with different mitochondrial lineages. Right. Good point. So we could add three very different uh, mitochondrial lineages amongst the three daughters-in-law of Noah. The Y chromosome, there's only one because Noah, three sons, that's it. So there's actually no Y chromosome Adam. There's a Y chromosome Noah. Right, right. We do not know what Adam's Y chromosome looked like. Because any mutations that happened between Adam and Noah were lost. There's no way to know. But we can estimate what Eve's was based on the mitochondria we see today. Assuming that the three girls weren't sisters. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you this earlier, but there's been so many good points being brought up. We've talked about the Y chromosome a few times, and then you mentioned that chimpanzees have a lot of diversity within themselves. Actually, I've read, I think it was in one of your articles, that chimpanzees have more diversity within themselves than humans and Neanderthals actually have, which is funny that yeah. they would. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why I think humans and Neanderthals are more similar than uh, brown bears and polar bears. Right. Yeah. I just read an article on that, I think by Dr. Tompkins. Okay. So, so, my, I heard it. <laughs> so my question, um, I, fi I find it fascinating. I've heard you talk about it. The Y chromosome dissimilarity then between humans and chimps, weren't they shocked to find out that it was so dissimilar, like less than 70%? Um, yeah, it was 70% on the half that the chimpanzees share with humans. Right. They don't even have the Q arm. It's not there. <laughs> now it's heterochromatic in humans. There's not a lot of D a lot, not a lot of genes there, just repetitive DNA, but they don't even have that arm. So of the <laughs> part that we share, it's only 70% identical, which means it's about 35% overall. Wow. And in the paper, they said that's as much diversity or that's as much difference as we expected between something like man and chicken. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading that. But that means that the difference between man, a mammal, and chicken, who evolved from dinosaurs, 
you have to go to the common ancestor with sorry in the evolutionary model you have to go to the common ancestor of mammals and reptiles what 400 million years ago yeah uh <laughs> uh that's a problem sirs now that the chimpanzee and white human y chromosome are radically different in fact the mitochondria are radically different i have spent a lot of my life because i'm stupid lining up human mitochondria in fact i did it um i think i've lined up fifty-two thousand of them in one file just to get the get an eyeball and do statistics and you know uh, just learn about how much mutations happened i cannot add the chimpanzee mitochondria to that i can't do it now statistically you could do it you could use a dna alignment program and it's just going to find the best alignment but i can't eyeball it and all humans, it's easy. Okay, here's an A. Okay, all these people have an A. Okay, some people have a G, some people have a C here. Oh, but the next letter, everyone's got a T. And so you just line them up. Can't do it with chimpanzee. It's hmm. very different. What is this? Super chat? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping on looking over here at the chat, and there's some really cool questions that fly yeah. by. And I'm <laughs> sorry, everybody. Those are great questions. I just can't <laughs> it, look here and then talk. And so, yeah. well, I was going to say, you probably need to be here for 10 hours. We have such a large audience and so many good questions. We'd have to be here for 10 hours. So maybe because we reached the hour mark, uh, Dr. Carter, if you don't mind, can we spend a few minutes maybe asking or asking some of these questions from the audience? Okay. Um, let me see. I you see. We're out of time, everybody. You can go to creation.com. Or yeah. if you like, you can go to YouTube and go to Biblical Genetics or biblicalgenetics.com. And almost all of my links go back to creation.com anyway, um, even though it's not a creation.com product. I, I highly recommend both the website and Biblical Genetics. I'm so glad you uh, made that channel, Dr. Carter, because every time I get a notification for a new video, your newest one was on epigenetics. I, I, get, I get excited. So I thank you for that. I highly recommend both uh, the creation.com and the Biblical Genetics YouTube channel. Cool. Um, so a couple of questions. You're right. They're, they're flying by. I managed to save a couple. Um, one here was Dr. Carter. Can you please explain what allele frequency is and why evolutionists say it's evolution? Okay. If you look at different letters in your genome, but let's use an easy example, brown eyes versus blue eyes. Uh, three of my children have blue eyes. So obviously I'm carrying the blue eyed allele. But blue eyes worldwide is like, I'm going to guess 1%. Almost everyone in the world has brown eyes. Europeans, a lot of them have blue eyes. Okay, Northern Europeans specifically. So the allele frequency of the blue-eyed allele is low. And the, the allele frequency for the brown-eyed allele is high. There's a difference there. And that's all it is. Allele frequency is just, you look at the frequency of the different letters in the genome. And some of them you know, it's a hundred percent. There's a lot of letters in our genome where every single person has the same exact letter. And then there are some places where one person out of 7 billion has a letter that no one else has. And the frequency of that was one divided by 7 billion, which is, you know, 0.000 something or other, right. a very small number. Um, if you look at, let's see, how do we get there? Oh, if you go to creation.com and type in Carter, and my CV will pop up and I'll list all my articles there. And one of them is something we actually talked about before we came on live was an article I published in the International Conference of Creationism in 2018, where I looked at the frequency of all the alleles in the genome 
and we ran statistical models and we said, okay, how do we get starting with Adam and Eve where all the alleles are a 50-50? How do we get it to look like there's a bunch of rare alleles and only a few common alleles? Can we do that in a creation model? And in fact, our creation model fit the data better than the evolutionary model, which is really funny. Um, so allele frequency is a big deal. And it looks like because there's so many rare alleles that the whole entire genome was built through the accumulation of mutations. But it's not true. Even if you start off with a bunch of ones where, you know, Adam has one and Eve has one, it's 50-50. Over time, they're going to drift to much lower values, most of them, and some of them are going to disappear. And then as you're adding new mutations on, in the really rare category, it's just going to look like it looks, I can't explain any better than that without using a chart. So real quick. So when they say that the allele frequency patterns can't be explained under a young earth creation model, clearly it can, the data is consistent. And yeah. with your paper here, was that the Adam and Eve design diversity and allele frequencies, Dr. Carter? Yes. Thank you. Yes. Uh, it's, it's no longer a challenge. We right. can explain rare and common letters in the genome starting with adam and eve plus the flood plus random drift plus new mutations and we didn't even add natural selection to that that's all good and i think it would just make it even tighter right so essentially what happens is the evolutionary model and the creation model are predicting the same thing yes ah. good <laughs> ah so it's um another article that I wrote called how to think, not what to think. And I put a, a diagram in there of a Venn diagram, two overlapping circles. And I said, most theories, they, there's an overlapping area where they predict the same thing. And so that's not where you argue. You can't argue change over time, for instance, because both the creationists and the evolutionists believes in change over time. Right. This is why we did evolution's Achilles heels. Once you get out of that area of overlap, you're talking about make it or break it ideas. This is true or not. If this isn't true, evolution is not true. So the allele frequency spectrum actually is not a great argument for evolution and it doesn't contradict a, a creation. Well, I love that answer, Dr. Carter, because we hear it all the time. But, you know, I, I predict that a lot of the critics anyways aren't, up to date with the creationist technical literature you know they haven't read these papers so they're just kind of i'm guessing repeating arguments they've heard from yeah. other you know it's like a ripple effect <laughs> yeah. um matt I, I know i think you saved a couple questions too did you have one there and i appreciate you giving us your time again dr carter and this has oh, flown yeah. by oh man you know what i've been isolated not with coronavirus but i've been isolated because of coronavirus since like march <laughs> I'll do anything to talk to people right now. So, <laughs> well, we love talking to you. We'll have you. We'll have you on all the time. You give the best answers. So, we appreciate it. chats having a great time. As you can see, we've got a lot of good questions. Um, Matt, I think I think you had a good one that you wanted to ask. Yeah, I, uh, two of them. Uh, the first one is evolutionists cannot explain RH negative and positive blood, and they are truly puzzled how we have this blood type. They believe that it should have evolved out of us thousands of years ago, yet we find it in high concentrations of these blood types in regions of the world that are isolated, like the, I believe is Basque people. What are your thoughts on RH negative and positive? Is this something from Noah or a more recently mutation? Pre 
I don't want to disagree with the questioner, but I think I do disagree with some of the assumption the questioner is making. Um, but I don't know how to get into all the details. Hmm. Uh, I know that in the past, uh, one of the first things people did was they used blood typing to try to separate racial groups. And they found some racial groups have one versus the other and, you know, more higher frequency. But as they did more and more work, they realized that, that all that was garbage. It just doesn't work. Now, there are some groups that have a high rate of one versus the other because of inbreeding, because they have, you know, a small founding population. That's fine. Uh, o is clearly a mutated A. If you look at the, the gene for O and the gene for A, they line up, except in that one spot right there. And that one letter change, you still make the enzyme that sticks the sugars onto the edge of your cell but you produce a defective one that doesn't work. You have an A gene that's broken. So A and B are the originals. They're different enough that I think God put into Adam and Eve A and B. I have no problem with that. And then at some point since creation, O happened, it broke. Um, but O is like 50% of the population today. So it must have been early. I suspect it must have been on the flood, on, on the ark. Okay. There's no way in an exponentially growing population, you can't get a new mutation to spread to 50% of the people. Right. So yeah. it, had, it had to be an early mutation. Um, chimpanzees and apes and uh, chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, I don't remember what the numbers were, but some of these groups have some of the blood types and not others. I think most of them have O, but if O is a broken gene, you know, whatever, any gene can break. And I don't remember what their frequencies were. Uh, RH negative is just rh negative it's just you either have or don't have this this thing sticking on the outside of your cell i don't know even that that's a broken gene i think it's just a variant but honestly i don't know i'm interested now because now i got to go look out and say what causes rh negative i don't actually know the answer to that so i have to stop there i don't know anything more i'm at the end of my knowledge on blood types okay Sorry, questioner i probably let you down <laughs> RH negative is a pretty weird thing. As a matter of fact, it's brought up on ancient aliens because it's such a weird, unique thing. Like they talk about it, you know, it's a, it's a no, weird topic. It's not. There are hundreds of blood types. Literally, there are hundreds of them. There's a lot of variation in the things that are expressed in, in our blood and on the cells lining the, the, um, the veins and arteries. Whatever. Some of them are rare. Some of them are common. But ancient aliens arc. <laughs> ancient alien theory. I remember um, when History Channel started. I'm like, yes, I History Channel. Woohoo! I haven't watched History Channel in probably 15 years. There's nothing about history on it. What a waste. Anyway. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, <probably. laughs> um, I gotta say, before I was a saved Christian, I gotta admit that I was into the whole ancient aliens theory. But then when I got saved and, and started studying young earth creation and reading articles from creation.com, I realized we don't need aliens. <laughs> it's all explained, you know, from our model. Yeah, and smart people. Right. Ancient and, people were a whole lot smarter than modern people realize. Right. Um, I got one question here from Jamie Russell. He, I'd feel horrible if I didn't ask it. He gave it the $10 super chat to ask it. Uh, thanks, Jamie. Um, he says, please ask him the question. He is risen. Amen, Jamie. His question is, has Dr. Carter heard of the genomes of lab mice being used for tests and they found they were far different 
the wild mice from being bred in captivity? I just read that word for word. Oh, um, yes. Add to that because he also asked a question just a minute ago. I saw that wasn't super chatted, and he was also asking if you've ever noticed there's a difference in telomere length uh, between wild and and lab mice. Uh, I don't know about telomere length. Um, okay. I just did uh, read and annotate and wrote part of a paper on telomere length in humans and the variations in humans. Wow. Um, but yes, the, the common lab mouse is not at all the same as the wild type. They're incredibly inbred. They, they're different. They picked up different variants. Um, in fact, all the golden hamsters in the world look like they came from one capture of a golden hamsters in Syria back in like 1880 or something like that. So if you have a hamster, it's almost a clone of all the other hamsters in the world. Uh, mice are a little different than that. There are a lot of different strains and subtypes. And, but they're a great model, even though they're inbred and even though they're not quite the same as a real mouse, it's a wonderful model for medicine because it's a mammal and it's easy to breed. And, you know, no one really cares if you kill one that much. They're not bunny rabbits. Oh, little bunny rabbits and they're monkeys, right? <laughs> they're, they're just, they're just mice and they're using an amazing amount of scientific experimenting. So. Anytime we have a lab model from a different species that we've developed, it doesn't mean it works in humans. It doesn't mean it would work if you, you know, find a, a pesticide that kills these mice. It doesn't mean it's going to kill the mice out in the, lab, in the wild. Mm. But it gives you an indication, oh, this is something that does this. Now let's test the next step and see how far it goes. A lot of times that kind of science doesn't go anywhere. But most of our cancer drugs, for instance, have come out of things like that. I see. So what have you discovered with the telomere length in human beings? Have you noticed that you said Europeans are most inbred? So would you would you find that most telomere length is shorter in people like us? Um, a massive new project just stopped. Uh, it's a 10 year program called the GTEX Consortium. <clears throat> and it was a follow up from the Human Genome Project. In fact, it was a follow up from the HapMap, not the HapMap, the, um, the ENCODE project. What they did was they took tissue samples from like 800 something cadavers multiple places in the body, like five different places in the brain, different places in the liver, the skin, the tongue, all, all different organs. And they looked at which RNAs were being expressed. Well, that's cool. That's which part of the genome is active. And then they said, okay, we have all these things being expressed. What letters does this person have versus that person? And oh, that letter controls this gene. Oh, and all of a sudden we're understanding function in the genome that we haven't never understood before. You know, when they first sequenced the human genome, we're like, we'll understand disease. Yeah, that wasn't true because the genome is a lot more complicated than anyone thought. But now we're finally figuring out. And one of the papers, it was in science two weeks ago, um, they looked at telomere length. And they're able to see that uh, men have different telomere length than women, that Africans have different than Europeans, uh, that telomere length changes with time, with age. And different tissues have different telomere lengths, but the only one that, where it really changes over time is in the testes because telomerase enzyme is active in the testes and not other places. But if the length of a telomere, it basically controls how many times a cell can divide because every time a cell divides, the telomeres get shorter. If you have short telomeres, you're probably not going to live as long as someone with long telomeres. I don't know if you guys can hear that. But we just came up with a giant Georgia thunderstorm. It's pouring rain and thundering just outside my window so if power goes out bye anyway 
<laughs> well, no problem. No problem. Um, Dr. Carter, I did actually, you know what, before I ask this one question, I'm curious because you mentioned ENCODE and the hat map data, I got to say, I love your lecture on that one. Watch that a few times just to understand it as best as I can. Uh, but when it comes to like ENCODE and let's say junk DNA non-coding versus coding, what, is it safe to say for the most part that the junk DNA paradigm has been overturned based on what we now know? Absolutely. But the evolutionists won't admit it. <laughs> right. So is it safe to say? Sure. Is it safe to say in public? No, you'll be ridiculed and called stupid and you don't understand what's going on. <laughs> uh, but because they're not going to let go of it. See, it doesn't matter. It, there's so many areas where this is important. One of the important parts is the difference in humans and chimpanzees. Right. See, if we're 99% identical, they can explain that in evolutionary time. If we're 96% identical, they're in trouble. If we're 95%, they can't do it mathematically. If we're 90%, forget it. We're not evolutionary related to chimpanzees. <laughs> or gorillas existed with T-Rexes. Right. And they're Wait. not going to do that. You can't, you can't, you know, stretch out because you know, once you learn all these differences, you have to say chimpanzees and humans are further back in time, our common ancestor. But there's only so far you can go. So they haven't been willing to push back beyond six million years. Or else apes are with dinosaurs, which they don't like that idea. Anyway, <clears throat> the Encode Project. All, ooh, that's big thunder. All they can you hear that? Not at all. No. Okay. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> the, all they did was they looked at one percent of the genome, scattered in little bits and pieces all over the genome, and they found out that almost all of the parts they looked at were made into RNA. Now that means it's functional. Because you're not going to have 99% of your genome making parasitic RNA. You're not going to waste all your time making all this junk because that will just gum up the system. Biology is very streamlined. It's not inefficient. So if we're making all that, we must have a function. And that was their argument. And now the GTEX consortium is saying that, oh, no, it's a lot worse than ENCODE said. There's a lot more functionality of the genome. And a lot of RNA being manufactured that actually does things. It's not random. I don't remember what the question was. I was just rambling. Or something. No, no, that was a perfect answer. And it, it makes right. me um, think about how many evolutionists I've interacted with and ones that say, you know, they've been at this, they've been fighting YEC for 10 years. But when I explain to them the functions and say even retrotransposons or ALUs, they're unfamiliar with it. And, and I've, I've watched your video on biblical genetics on retrotransposons and, and the functions now found in them. And are you able to maybe touch on that just for a, a minute? Uh, be best thing to do would be to go to creation.com, type in Carter and transposons. Okay. I, I wrote you know one article about them, uh, the lingering death of junk DNA or something like that. It was yes. one of my first articles I ever wrote for creation.com. Uh, the slow, painful death of junk DNA, I think it was called. Okay. Even, but see, we don't need 100% of the genome to be functional. Right. We can have junk. We can have mistakes. We can have non-functional places. You can delete it or not. It doesn't matter. We can have scaffolding, where the only reason that this piece of DNA is there is because it holds this gene in place in three dimensions. But the sequence is irrelevant. All that stuff is perfectly possible in the design, uh, the design area. Right. Hey, that, someone just popped up with a question. Can I talk about iron preservation and dinosaur tissue? <laughs> of course. Yeah. 
the Fenton chemistry can theoretically preserve proteins by cross-linking them. Theoretically, but you need a lot of iron. But that same process destroys DNA. <laughs> so you can't get both. You can't get proteins and DNA using iron as your answer. And so fine, if you evolutionists, you want to appeal to iron, great. Go ahead. And there's not going to be any DNA in your body. Oh, there is evidence of DNA in dinosaur bones. <laughs> Sorry, evolutionists. <laughs> yeah. Now, no one's sequenced it yet. I, I, I'm not expecting much there at all. I'm actually shocked that they found any. Because 4,500 years, that's a long time for DNA. Yeah. That's a long, long time. Anyway. I got um, a question from a guy named John. He said, um, have you been following the new discoveries that gene expression varies by cell type and dramatic differences of activity in vitro versus, in, uh, I'm sorry, in vivo, vivo versus in vitro? Uh, the answer is yes. That's the article I'm writing about the GTEX consortium right there. Got it. Okay. Hey, another thing just popped up. I, I it's gone. I don't know who it was. Ask a question about clean. Back. All right, Gene clean versus started. unclean animals. Is that a testable prediction? The answer is actually no, because each type of animal has different genetics. They have different reproductive rate. They have different DNA repair enzymes. Uh, they have, uh, you know, different biology. And clean animals tend to come from flocks, and flocks tend to be inbred. So just because there's more clean animals doesn't mean that there's more diversity in clean animals on the ark. And right. as far as ocean creatures go, uh, possibly, except there's massive die-offs in the ocean also. Uh, there's no more trilobites. There's tons of diatom species that are extinct. There's, there's, there was a massive amount of extinction in the oceans also. It's not that easy a question to answer. It's a fascinating question, but it's something that's going to take someone to slog through a lot of data and, and do a lot of testing of a lot of different things. And we should not expect clean, unclean arc versus ocean. I don't think you can easily predict what your results will be in that kind of an experiment, but it's a cool question. I just, I have no idea how to get to it. Right. Yeah, no, that's a, um, well, I got to say, uh, Dr. Carter, we've, we're going on an hour and a half now and it sounds like you've had a really busy day. I don't want to keep you all night. Um, okay. there's been some, some great answers from you. So the audience has had some great questions. I, as you can tell, you know, you are, um, a big, we're all a big fan of you, including the audience. So we appreciate all the work that you've done. We appreciate you giving us your time again for tonight's interview. Also, uh, thanks so much, Paul, for helping to arrange it. I wanted to hand it over to you for maybe some final words, some final thoughts, Dr. Carter, before we shut it down for the night. I would like to encourage everyone to not give up. There are questions that can be answered. There are some questions that can't be answered and never will be answered, and that's fine. But just because evolution seems overwhelming and naturalism seems so powerful, it doesn't mean that it's actually true. We have to do a lot of work sometimes to contradict it. But as those pillars of evolution start falling, sometimes they start fall really quickly. So keep on pushing. It's worth struggling with this. It's worth wrestling with this. And be really, really careful. When you come up with a question that seems unanswerable, most of the time it's designed that way and you have to actually look at the man behind the curtain. The question itself can be misleading. And I've seen that so many times. And honestly, there are questions I still can't answer and there are questions that still bug me. 
there are some things that that literally like i have no idea how to address that i hope no one ever asked me that in public <laughs> but usually the questions we get have already been answered and people are just regurgitating things they've they've heard from you right. know, talk out origins or richard dawkins or something like that and it's like you know come on man give me something I, that, that's hard to answer and i'll All have right. more fun with it but so do not be disheartened hold on to the truth and fight for it for everything it's worth all right amen amen great words dr carter once again we appreciate your time and i couldn't agree more it, it kind of it, it makes it reminds me of your lecture on hot map data where you kind of you looked at it and you struggled with it for a while and then eventually you realize that it's exactly what we'd expect in the young earth creation model Okay, well, um, once again, thank you so much. Thank you, Matt, for uh, joining me in the interview uh, tonight. Thanks to the audience. I'll end it with our, um, our ending video here. And thanks so much, guys. God bless. And Standing for Truth is out.